Well, ladies and gentlemen, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the Tuesday, 17th of January, 2023 episode of the Greenwich, a town for all seasons show podcast. This weekly Greenwich, Connecticut history podcast is hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. The town was founded on July 18, 1640. Since its humble beginnings, Greenwich, Connecticut has emerged as one of America's most notable and attractive communities. It's a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years as ours do, whether you're here to stay, just passing through, or you're brand new here, well, guess what? We welcome you with open arms. I congratulate you because you are a part of our history. <laughs> I'm so glad that you could join us for today's show. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible for you and so many people out there by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, my friends, we've got a great show for you, so without any further delay, let's get started. Coming up on today's show. Well, we've got a great show for you today. As we cast our gaze to Greenwich in the Gilded Age, we'll visit Nash Cottage in Belhaven Park. It was built in 1892 for Edwin Nash. He was the president of the American Naval Stores Company, exporters of fine products to Europe and Russia. It was designed by the architectural firm of Boring, Tilton, and Mellon. Nash Cottage is featured in the book Victorian Summer, the Historic Houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard. On Greenwich Before 2000, you'll learn what happened in Greenwich, Connecticut during the years 1883, 1884, and 1885. On the judge's corner, Judge Frederick A. Hubbard wrote about Kent House. Quote, the story of Kent House is tinged with romance and interwoven with memories of those who once were young, grew older, and disappeared forever. A great thoroughfare, Putnam Avenue is now proclaimed the Greenwich graphic just after Christmas in 1913. And why? Well, <laughs> I'll share the details with you. On January 1920, there was a great amount of discussion and debate regarding the matter of changing clocks ahead or behind an hour, you know, going from standard time to daylight saving time and the other way around. Well, the state of Connecticut at that time found itself in a potentially anomalous situation, quote-unquote, and I'll explain why. Erwin Edwards proclaimed, quote, Greenwich is a Grinta green of New York City, and for that matter, for towns and cities somewhat remote from the metropolis outside of the state of Connecticut, unquote. You'll hear what this means and why in Greenwich life as it is and was. Now, I know that a number of you, at least here in Greenwich anyway, have been receiving your, your tax bills. Well, imagine this. With the news that Edmund C. Converts uh, state uh, found, and that he was the owner of Conyers Manor, of course, his, uh, his inheritance tax uh, was a record $997,396.20 
seven cents in inheritance tax, and that happened a century ago. Now, in mid-January 1914, the roof of the Holly House, we know it today as Bush Holly House, the headquarters of the Greenwich Historical Society, was discovered to be blazing. Well, fortunately, they put the, the fire out, and I'll share more details about that. Now, on crimes and misdemeanors, it was January 1923, a century ago, and the headlines yelled, Wretchedness on the houseboat, couple unmarried, brought to court for having child in custody. Now, you know what? There's always a lot to see and do and to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and, and trust me, you've come to the right place to learn about the history of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. We're going to have all this, and we're going to have a lot more as our... Our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Make Site Design Associates of Greenwich, Connecticut your choice when it comes to taking your beautiful landscaped property to the next level. An award-winning landscape architecture studio since 1979, Site Design Associates places a high value on a unique multidisciplinary approach to landscape design and development that is second to none. From analysis to construction to maintenance with 35 years of experience, Site Design Associates offers services that are collaborative and visionary with each client's unique style in mind. Offices are located at 777 West Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, Connecticut. Call 203 869 6895 or go online to learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. The Long Island Sound Institute understands that a bright environmental future relies on brilliant ideas and methods. A special initiative by Site Design Associates, LISI is a community of diverse professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned citizens, harnessing the powers of imagination and innovation to achieve the ecological balance and conservation of Long Island Sound for present and future generations. It aims to use modern planning and the implementation of new technologies to conserve Long Island Sound Looking forward to a bright future of effective leadership. To learn more about the Long Island Sound Institute, go online to lisistudy.info or call 203-869-8632. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is a tribute to those Americans who served the nation on the international scene as ambassadors in the American Diplomatic Corps. There has never been a museum specifically dedicated to ambassadors. The museum's founders and supporters are committed to achieving its educational mission with programs and events for high school and college students. My friends, you can learn more by contacting the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, by calling 203 869 8632, write to Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831, or go online at amusa.info. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. 
My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Victorian Summer, the historic houses of Belhaven Park, Greenwich, Connecticut by Matt Bernard is an incredible compilation of Belhaven's rich history. Featuring beautiful photos and ephemera, the book is the culmination of decades of work and research by Matt Bernard, taking its readers to America's Gilded Age as found in Belhaven. On today's show, we're going to visit Nash Cottage. It's, um, it was built in 1892. Its principal owner was Edwin Nash. The address is uh, 60 Otter Rock Drive. The architect was the firm of Boring, Tilton, and Mellon. Um, it was altered in 1906 and again in 1914. Edwin Strudwick Nash, who lived from 1854 to 1931, was president of the American Naval Stores Company, exporters of pine products to Europe and Russia. Our modest interest in him, however, really lies in his distinguished family. His grandfather, Frederick Nash, who lived from 1781 to 1858, was Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. His great-grandfather, Abner Nash, who lived from 1740 to 1786, was governor of that state during the Revolution. And Abner's brother, General Francis Nash, who lived from 1742 to 1777, who died of wounds suffered in the Battle of Germantown, gave his name to Nashville, Tennessee. How about that? Edwin Nash married Mattie Chenault, whose scholar father was raised on a Kentucky farm that Harriet Beecher Stowe once visited and supposedly used as the setting for Uncle Tom's cabin. Best of all, the fourth of Edwin and Mattie's five children, Ogden, was America's preeminent writer of light verse, See, for example, the private dining room, quote-unquote, it says. It would be nice to report that Ogden Nash, who lived from 1902 to 1971, tumbled out of the womb in Belhaven, alas, quote, by the time Ogden was born on August 19, 1902, the Nashes had moved from Greenwich to Milton Point in Rye, New York, writes biographer Douglas M. Parker. In Rye, Nash grew up in what he called a grotesque Victorian. Quote-unquote, a past owner had hanged himself in the mansion's tower. Oh, dear. Thus, Nash Cottage just misses being historically significant. It was, however, a fine colonial revival. Some would refer to it as an elaborate version of the popular four-square cottages that were so prevalent at the time in middle-class suburbs. Its notable features were an unusual pyramid-hipped roof and a three-sided piazza with a gazebo. A Queen Anne flourish, it would seem, but almost anyone building a country house in the 1880s and early 1890s required a piazza for catching cool, shady breezes. Also somewhat unusual was the fact that, owing to the sloping landscape, the piazza was suspended over a full walkout basement-level terrace decorated with potted palms that may have reminded the Nashes of Savannah, where they kept a, ho a summer home. Otherwise, Nash Cottage exhibited the four-square look typical of a colonial revival. It was essentially an elegant but simple box broken by nooks and gabled dormers. 
Quote, the first story is clappered and the second story is shingled, with an interesting overlapping detail, and all is painted light olive green with bottle green trimmings, reported Scientific American's building edition. Quote, roof shingled and stained moss green, unquote. Edmund Nash commissioned Boring, Tilton, and Mellon to design the house, doubtless noting that the firm had just completed an impressive colonial revival called Old Orchard for industrialist Charles A. Moore on nearby Field Point Drive. Boring, Tilton, and Mellon were the most active architects in Belhaven, designing four documented houses. William A. Boring and Edwin L. Tilton also designed the casino, the social hub of Belhaven, and Nathan Mellon designed two mansions in the neighborhood on his own. Boring and Tilton are discussed at great length in the Old Orchard chapter, that's on page 190, and Mellon in the Witherell chapter, which starts on page, 50, uh, page 30. After the Nashes moved to Rye, subsequent owners added to the house at 60 Otto Rock Drive. Two sides of the original gazebo still exist, but next to it, a two-story wing that effectively doubled the size of the house. It was built in 1906, and a third story was added to it in 1914. This created a rather top-heavy, flat-roofed tower effect. The additional acre to the rear of the house was sold in the 1950s, and the carriage house on that site was converted into a single-family home. That structure was demolished and in 1987 replaced by one of Shope Reno Wharton's first commissioned houses, a modern interpretation of a shingle-style cottage that mimicked many of Belhaven's early homes. By the mid 70s, Nash Cottage had been effectively converted over the years to a three-family house with the different generations of one family occupying each floor. The cottage was finally sold to a local real estate broker, who then flipped it to the daughter of Mary Martin, the actress. It had seen many piecemeal alterations and failed restoration projects over the year. In 2011, the house was sold again and finally received a multi-year complete gut renovation by its new owners. While maintaining the original integrity of the cottage, the new house that was created added many modern Victorian flourishes that has given the property a fresh, lightened, reimagined presence. kept secret in historic Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Voted Best Coffee Shop in Greenwich by the readers of Greenwich Magazine and honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association in 2022, Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story of a restored historic treasure, a destination that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. You'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and the historical ambiance when you enter the 1858 Italianate-styled Solomon Mead House at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church. Serving coffee, teas, an assortment of delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good employs and trains people with special needs. Through a self-sustaining inclusive platform, trainees acquire the skills and confidence they need to thrive in the community. Open daily 
daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. except Sundays. Coffee for Good offers you free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating year-round in a relaxed setting with a vibe all its own. A popular destination for informal business meetings, gatherings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Take it from me, my friends. The word about Coffee for Good has gotten around. After all, its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to excellence and inclusion. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue on the campus of the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill National Historic District on the National Register of Historic Places. Open daily, 8 a.m. through 6 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more by going to coffeeforgood.org. Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman at the Greenwich Historical Society on October 19th, 2022, and it would be closing on January 22nd, 2023. My friends, this long-awaited exhibition of artworks by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twachman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, presents a new view into the artist's life and home in Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899. The exhibition, curated by art historian and Twachman scholar Lisa N. Peters, Ph.D., features artworks on loan from museum and private collections across the country, offering a unique glimpse into the artworks Twachman made, which depict his Greenwich home and his distinctive environs and the way the artist shaped the land to meet his artistic needs. My friends, to learn more about life and art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard was a lawyer, writer, a gifted storyteller. He re- his remarkable life spanned the end of the 19th century and the first third of the 20th in Greenwich, Connecticut. He wrote under a pseudonym, Ezekiel Lemondale. No, don't ask me where he got it from, but <laughs> it's unique to say the least. And he used that when he was writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff. He had a newspaper column called The Judge's Corner. Now, years ago, Frank Nicholson collected Judge Hubbard's published art- articles. He organized them in compendium form, and he republished them as Greenwich History, the Judge's Quarter, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard. They were selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. On today's show, I'm going to share with you column number 129. It's dated March 3rd, 1932, and its title... A History of Kent House, Dr. Hobby and his wife Mary, whose farm was on the present site, Thomas Rich, Old Days at the House, and some of the guests. And Judge Hubbard's comments start as follows. More than a century ago, a farmhouse of the lean-to type, probably built at the beginning of the 19th century, stood on the site of the Kent House. Who built the house is is not now apparent, but subsequently it was owned and occupied by Mary E. Hobby, a somewhat eccentric character who, with her husband commonly called Dr. Hobby, conducted a farm rather limited in area. We speak of her first because she long outlived her husband. In those days, they were not rated as the most successful farmers, but they were honest, law-abiding people, somewhat retiring in disposition and not very much in the public eye. 
When the New York and New Haven Railroad was built between 1846 and 1848, a deep cut took a considerable slice off of the north side of their farm. The old cut, unused since 1892 when the line was slightly changed, was called by the railroad men Dr. Hobby's Cut, quote-unquote, a name that has now probably disappeared. On the crest of the hill where the old farmhouse stood was a view of the harbor and a glimpse of Long Island Sound. From the narrow, multi-paned windows, the view was across the cultivated fields of the prosperous old-time farmers, Oliver Mead and Nelson Bush, with about 10 acres called the Baldwin Lot on the harbor shore, which property belonged to Mrs. Hobby. Spencer P. Mead's history mentioned several men by the name of Hobby, who were prominent in town affairs during and after the Revolutionary War but we have no information of the family history of Mrs. Hobby's husband. One Captain John Hobby, innkeeper, lived in the village on the country road now called Putnam Avenue, and he was connected with the Jabez Mead family. The maiden name of Mary E. B. Hobby and her birthplace are asked for by a correspondent. One might suppose that a widow well advanced in years and childless after the death of her daughter Celia would be contented with home surroundings and shrink from anything like the development of the old house into a more modern structure. But that is exactly what happened. The old house was enveloped by a new building with a flat roof of wider windows and an ample front piazza. Out of this, the Kent House grew, and in the years of success that have followed, became widely known and one of the institutions, if not the most prominent one, that was given Greenwich its worldwide reputation. The structure that was built about 1873 in place of the old farmhouse can still be identified at the southeast corner of the present enlarged and extended Kent House, by the way, demolished, a victim of I-95, being untented for a year or two, it passed into the possession of Thomas Rich. No one who ever knew and enjoyed the hospitality of Thomas Rich has forgotten him. Besides being a jolly good fellow, always the first to appear in his sleigh, whether the snow warranted it or not, he was a square and level-headed man of business. The bluestone piers of the Brooklyn Bridge came from his quarry at Byram. Far up, from, uh, far up under the keystone of the Great Arch on the New York side is the date 1870, cut before it left the quarry. The story of the Kent House is tinged with romance and interwoven with memories of those who once were young, grew older, and then disappeared forever. Some seemed to depart before their time. It, was never, it has never been termed a hotel. Its small beginning with 12 guests gave it the name Kent House, and later as it grew in size by repeated additions to the structure and the increase of guests, it took the name of the Kent House. In the first summer of the sudden death of Mrs. Kent, the first lessee, lessee rather, its management was assumed by her young and inexperienced daughter. Besides being a shrewd, far-sighted, and eminently just man, Mr. Rich was also a keen observer of personal ability and character, or he never would have urged upon Miss Kent the, accept the acceptance of the lease without security for a $600 rent. 
but results have proved that he knew what he was about. A father could not have been more kind and helpful to Miss Kent and her brothers than was Thomas Rich, and often has their gratitude been expressed. When Miss Kent came to Greenwich in the spring and announced by reason of her bereavement the house must be given up, Mr. Rich saw an empty house, for it was then too late to secure another tenant for the season. It is doubtful, however, if the loss of the rent affected him as seriously as the absence of a tenant. The house had never been planned for the purpose of boarders. In fact, the property had been assumed for debt, and it was Mr. Rich, Rich's wish to make a favorable start in what he regarded as something of a white elephant. The house was remote, standing practically alone on the northern edge of territory, included in the farms of Oliver Mead, Nelson Bush, and Nelson B. Mead, and Augustus I. Mead, the two latter not being farmers, but later engaged in the development of the sightly acres that had been cultivated by their father, Judge Augustus Mead. It was seven years before Belhaven Park was thought of, and for more than twenty years after, Field Point had its racetrack, Round Island was a picnic ground with a bathing beach, resorted to by all the inhabitants of Greenwich, augmented by visitors from Westchester County, which included campers for half the summer. Sunday schools and fraternal societies came in for a share of Oliver Mead's hospitality, and later of his successor, Oliver D. Mead. That such privileges were often abused was well known, and yet after the death of Oliver Mead, Oliver D. was quite as generous. With such surroundings, it is easy to realize the popularity of the Kent House, and yet the house itself was not altogether desirable. With all its additions and extensions, it still retains its individuality, for on the southeast corner of the present structure may be seen lines of the original house of 1873. When the autumn days came and the guests had departed, the Kent House became a social center, visited by the choicest young people from the village. There were Halloween parties, picnics at Round Island, and Saturday night dances, at which, quote, the Blue Danube Waltz, unquote, was popular, but the old-fashioned square dances generally prevailed. The dozen guests of the first season were personal friends, and the number increased year by year, but never by advertising. Among those guests was the mother of Judge Joseph F. Daly, of the New York Court of Common Pleas, and his brother Augustine, of Theodore fame. Like the prominent people that followed, they enjoyed a house run on unique lines, creating for people of culture and refinement an atmosphere of home with all its essentials. Transients were never taken, and the guests who were accepted were personally known. Those were the days of dog carts drawn by tandem teams, and the musical horn of the tally-ho was often heard from the country roads. And when those guests came in, they would be served with the delicacies of an afternoon tea or a midnight lunch. Year after year, the same guests and their relatives and friends came back and now are being entertained by grandchildren of those early patrons. In 1884, the Shore Road was built and maps were issued of lots for sale in Belhaven Park. Miss Kent made the first purchase. The Kent House guests who had strolled over the Bush Farm and admired its views from stately trees followed in the purchase of lots. 
Among those were Charles A. Moore, Frank H. Page, William E. Carthart, Alan W. Adams, and Joseph C. Baldwin. Some of these are still living in the houses they built. It was the influence and guidance of the Kents that brought many others to permanent homes in Belhaven. As guests of the Kent house, they had learned to love Greenwich. One of them once spoke of the taste with which the Kent house was furnished. Its oriental rugs, its solid silver candelabra, and its valuable paintings said it was nearer like the home of a wealthy New Yorker than any other public house in the world. It may be interesting to recall some of the other guests who became permanent residents of Greenwich. Charles T. Wills, Henry Mason Day, Frank Fromart, R.A.C. Smith, A.C. Henkin, W.C. Henkin, W.S. Gray, Sr. and Jr., David M. Look, Henry Baker, Frank Hyatt, William H. Hayes, Nelson Macy, E.T. Holmes, Duncan Edwards, Henry W. Croft, Edwin H. Baker, Edwin N. Chapman, John D. Chapman, Charles P. Geddes, Joseph P. Turbell, E.H. Peters, Harmon Vanderhoof, George W. Vanderhoof, and Bailey Vanderhoof. Some guests wedded to other localities have left their well-known names, such as Robert H. McCormick, Mrs. James G. Blaine, and James G. Blaine, Jr., Mrs. Emmons Blaine, Walter Damrosh, Professor Brander Matthews of Columbia, and William B. Leeds. The names of Halsey, Wing Kent, and Jess, Jenny Elizabeth Kent will be remembered for generations as important factors in the growth and prosperity of Greenwich, and the Kent House so widely known with its legions of French will, will doubtless continue to enjoy the same prosperity under the present management of W.C. Reed, whose mother was a sister of the Kents. And that was by George Frederick A. Hubbard. Let me tell you this. It's um, something that Frank Nicholson has said of uh, Judge Hubbard, and, and I quote this. It says, One feels after reading him that here was Greenwich's Renaissance man. He was a traveler, sportsman, epicure, observer of the contemporary scene, arborist, botanist, critic, humorist, naturalist, an oracle, a profiler of people, a recorder of events, a describer of places, even a militant protester, and a sound recorder of various aspects of Greenwich history. Unquote. My friends, Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 vintage newspaper columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, is available for borrowing from the Greenwich Library system. Now, you can visit GreenwichLibrary.org, or better still, I invite you to go and visit the nearest library branch to you. You are listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, long known as the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, 
landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum United States of America, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the podcast uh, in which we remind ourselves that not everything was uh, picture perfect in (laughs) Greenwich, Connecticut's history, um, that uh, crimes were committed, as they still are today. Um, And we do this also as a a tribute uh, and salute to the um, Greenwich Police Department, which recently celebrated its 125th anniversary. The following stories uh, come from uh, January 5th, 1923, so roughly a century ago, of course. Um, And the headline on this first one is Wretchedness on Houseboat. That catches your attention, doesn't it? Well, I hope so anyway. A couple, unmarried, brought to court for having child in custody. What happened? Well, let me share it with you. Captain Ezra Holloway, who says he is 94 years of age and served in both the Mexican and Civil Wars, and Mary L. Jackson, a native of the British Isles and practically blind from cataracts on the eyes, occupied the attention of Judge James R. Meade yesterday morning for an hour and a half, both having been arrested by Dr. O.G. Palmer, agent uh, for the Connecticut Humane Society, for having in their custody a child under the age of 16 who was not being properly cared for. Jack, who will be four years old next September, was in court, and it was evident that he had not seen very much of the outside world since he was born, having been kept on an an old houseboat off Schofield's Dock, Greenwich Point, Sound Beach, with Holloway and his mother, Mrs. Jackson. According to the evidence introduced, Mrs. Jackson obtained a divorce from her husband in New London two years ago, last June, on grounds of intolerable cruelty, after he had struck her and caused the cataracts in her eyes to form. Holloway, who had known Mrs. Jackson's parents, befriended the woman, paid her expenses in securing the divorce, and also expenses incurred at the Bellevue Hospital the following September, when her baby was born. He proposed marriage to the woman, and she accepted. He then obtained a marriage license in South Norwalk shortly afterward, but since that time he has been deferring the marriage ceremony. Last Sunday, according to Mrs. Jackson's testimony, Holloway said he was going to abandon her and find some other woman and that she could go to the poorhouse. That's not very nice. Well, having received, the article continues, having received a complaint about Holloway and the woman, Dr. O.G. Palmer, accompanied by Captain Flanagan, visited the houseboat in question on Wednesday, and they both testified in court yesterday that the place was in a filthy condition. Holloway was eating his breakfast, which consisted of some cornmeal and milk. Both he and Mrs. Jackson, as well as the child, were most despicable-looking objects, dirty and apparently not properly cared for. An old stove in the cabin furnished the heat, and dirty bedclothes and other wearing apparel were discovered. The place was very stuffy and full of odors. Captain Flanagan said Holloway told him he was born in Waterford, Connecticut, and had followed the water the greater part of his life. 
He said the child was evidently not used to seeing strangers as he appeared terribly frightened. He experienced considerable difficulty yesterday morning in getting the woman from the houseboat because of the isolated place in which the houseboat was located and the heavy snowfall from the previous night made conditions worse. Holloway took the stand in his own behalf. He said the houseboat was about 35 feet long and some 18 feet in width. He purchased the boat in Stamford and spent several hundred dollars in having it rebuilt, which was contrary to the statement of Dr. Palmer and Captain Flanagan, who claimed the houseboat was old and dilapidated. Holloway said he used the pedal clams from Bridgeport to Danbury and then went into the sand business. Of late years, he had been associated with a Mr. McGuire of New York in the coal barge business. He told of knowing the Jackson family years ago and of the brutal attack made upon Mrs. Jackson by her husband, who put one of her eyes out and made the other eye partly blind. He had befriended her and since, and, and she was has since been his housekeeper. He denied the fact that the child was not properly taken care of and explained that there was plenty of groceries and meat in the houseboat always. He intimidated, intimated rather, to the court that he had plenty of money. Besides his houseboat, he had a 30-foot sloop and three powerboats anchored near the houseboat. His houseboat, he claimed, is worth at least $450.00 and his other boats, $1,400. Mrs. Jackson, in a statement to the court, said her husband struck her because she would not sell liquor to soldiers and sailors during the World War. Holloway wanted her to marry him, but he had never fulfilled his promise, she said, not even after obtaining a marriage license in South Norwalk. She said it was difficult to get water on the houseboat, which accounted for the condition of the cabin, as well as the clothing, which had not been washed for three weeks. Only recently, she said, Holloway went to get a pail of water and fell, fracturing a rib. A physician at Bellevue Hospital told her he would operate on her eyes, but she had been unable to leave the boat, which had been anchored off Sound Beach since last August. She was born in the British West Indies and has no relatives in this country. For a time, she lived in Tampa, Florida. She said Jack, her son, would eat no solid food but lived on Borton's evaporated milk. She then told how Holloway was going to leave her and go to New York. Assistant prosecuting attorney White referring, referred to Holloway as an old reprobate, and if it were not for his age, he would recommend a jail sentence. He suggested that Mrs. William A. Stevens, woman probation officer of the court, further investigate the case. Judge Meade said that it was the worst case that he had ever come to his attention. He remanded Holloway and Mrs. Jackson to the lockup until today and directed that Mrs. Stevens further investigate conditions. In the meantime, Holloway appears to be a man of about 65 years. His hair, which falls partway down over his shoulders, is only... Where is it? Oh, partly gray, but one would never believe that he is as old as he claims. This morning, Prosecutor White stated that H. Clayton Preston, general manager of the Connecticut Humane Society, was desirous of ascertaining the lawful residence of Holloway and Mrs. Jackson, and if possible, locate the father of the child. Upon his recommendation, the case was adjourned until Monday. Holloway will remain in the town lockup, and Mrs. Jackson and her, and her son Jack will be taken care of by the town through Charity Commissioner James Marr and Mrs. William A. Stevens, who will see that 
that they are placed in some proper institution until the case is disposed of. Mrs. Arthur Loveridge, vice president of the Stamford Greenwich branch of the Greenwich of the Connecticut Humane Society, Mrs. Ernest H. Turnbull, Mrs. Guy Carleton, Mrs. George S. Wallen, the latter being connected with the cap of uh, the Chapin the Chapin Adoption Society in New York, were present in court being much interested in the case. Well, on Friday, December 26, 1913, the readers of the Greenwich Graphic opened up their papers, particularly to page four, and they saw an editorial, which I'm about to uh, to read to you. Now, many of you, uh, whether you have been here a long time or not, have probably heard the name Robert M. Bruce. He was a very, very prominent philanthropist um, here in Greenwich, Connecticut, a century ago or so. And... Um, uh, and he gave, for example, uh, Bruce Park, uh, which we all enjoy very much as one of our community gems. He also gave the uh, building that became uh, for many years the Town Hall. It is now the uh, Senior Center uh, on uh, Greenwich Avenue, uh, just to, across from the Havemeyer Building, where the Board of Education um, has its offices. Um, there was a proposal uh, that was uh, made to erect a statue um, in the likeness of Robert M. Bruce. Um, by the way, Erwin Edwards, I feature his uh, article or his uh, column, uh, rather, Greenwich Life as it is and was um, on this podcast. He was the publisher or editor, I should say, of the um, Greenwich Graphic. And um, I'm assuming that he was probably the author of this editorial um, calling for a Bruce, uh, a Robert M. Bruce statue. So let me just read it to you. And again, this appeared on Friday, December 26, 1913. The suggestion of a statue at the Town Hall frontage commemorative of the late Robert M. Bruce strikes a most responsive chord among Greenwich people. Perhaps no one of those of prominence who have lived their lives here more thoroughly deserves such recognition for his various acts and benefactions and philanthropies by which both the town and individuals have reaped advantage. Among the poor, the number is legion who have had help from his liberal hand, mothers and babies notably, while his public benefactions have been markedly enlarged, as is evidenced by the town hall and Bruce Park. The former in connection with his sister, he bore the entire cost of, both plot and building. By will, he gave the latter to the town, and this includes the extensive grounds and the mansion, the entire surroundings, in fact. And all this has most properly attached to his memory the title of the, quote, Grand Old Man of Greenwich, unquote. The cost of the town hall property was over $200,000, and the value of the Bruce Park property approaches it if, if it does not exceed the million mark. While the suggestion has not yet taken form, and no movement has so far started for nucleus of a fund for or for plans, there is casually discussed a bronze figure in what was his favorite attitude, attitude or surplus base at possibly the Greenwich Avenue and either the Bruce Place or Havemeyer Place corner, well back from the sidewalk line. Such steps are, as are taken respecting the suggestion, will be applauded and aided by the entire community in the hope of accomplishing its early fruition. And to the best of my knowledge, I don't think that a statue um, in the likeness of Robert M. Bruce 
uh, of the kind anyway, that was uh, called for here in this editorial, was ever erected. Um, we'll have to do some more research on that and see, but I, I don't recall ever seeing um, a statue um, in the likeness of Robert M. Bruce. Well, my friends, a century ago, and this was uh, on Friday, January 12th, 1923, article appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic about the, the snow and ice conditions uh, for cars um, on uh, Meads and Putts Hills. Uh, and let me just share this with you. It's not very long, but it sounds very familiar to us, of course, even in the uh, 21st century. And it goes as follows. The sleet and rainstorm of Sunday night made conditions on the public highways impassable in many places on Monday morning. Putts Hill resembled a coasting toboggan slide, and a number of motor trucks, as well as pleasure cars, were unable to make the steep incline. The westbound trolley cars during the early morning hours were greatly delayed, when a motor truck got stalled across the tracks at Putts Hill and was finally to towed up the hill by the snowplow. Many clerks and stenographers who are employed in local business houses reached their offices nearly an hour late. One person was heard to remark that some sawdust, ashes, or other substance should be placed on the slippery pavements, particularly the hills, by the town or borough authorities, which would enable motor vehicles to make the hills without danger to the occupants and prevent the impeding of traffic in the future. Well, it was in January in 1914 that a fire broke out at the Holly House. We know it today as the Bush Holly House uh, on uh, Strickland Road in Coscob. It is the headquarters, of course, of the Greenwich Historical Society. Um, this is uh, an article that appeared on the, I believe, the 16th of the, yeah, the 16th of January, 1914. And um, it says, Coscob Hose Company, headed by Frank T. Palmer, saves property. Good thing. The article goes as follows. Early Wednesday morning, the roof of the Holly House at Cuscub was discovered to be blazing, the chimney having caught a fire and the sparks coming from it having caused the shingle roof to ignite. Elmer McRae, the artist, ran to the Cuscub post office and gave the alarm, and Postmaster Charles Messenger immediately telephoned to Frank T. Palmer at his boatworks and asked for assistance. Mr. Palmer called out his employees at once, and inside of five minutes the fire was extinguished. The Coscob Hose Company certainly deserve great credit for its quick work. Well, the Greenwich Graphic on Friday, December 26, 1913, Proclaimed to its readers, quote-unquote, a great thoroughfare. Putnam Avenue is now, of course, Putnam Avenue. Um, referred today would be East Putnam Avenue as well as West Putnam Avenue. That goes from the um, New York State uh, line uh, in uh, Porchester all the way to um, Stamford. Um, and, of course, it um, is bisected between East and West at the top of Greenwich Avenue. Um, I believe that back in the day it was just Putnam Avenue. Uh, but I would like to uh, to share this with you. It, um, it's very interesting, especially if you do drive um, east and or west Putnam Avenue um, at any time. The headline is a great thoroughfare. Putnam Avenue is now. And by the way, the term that was used back in the way for uh, you know drivers was automobilists. Can you imagine that being an automobilist? Well, that's what a driver of a motor vehicle would be called uh, back in that day. So um, the article goes as follows. 
automobilists stop and ask where they can get something to eat and for other things first class. A businessman's hotel would pay. A Greenwich Avenue businessman was heard to remark the other day, and again, this is in 1913, that he could afford to pay $1,000 a year more rental than he is paying at the present time if he could get a modern store on the Vori property at the head of Greenwich Avenue, facing the Post Road, because of the great amount of transient trade he could secure from automobilists who pass that way every day. And that's a quote from uh, the Greenwich News. The article continues. There are others that would like to get stores on Putnam Avenue, every one on this famous thoroughfare, being rented. And why? Well, because the Boston Post Road, since the coming of the automobile has become a very popular trunk road. Thousands of them pass along Putnam Avenue on any pleasant day. Talking with Officer Tobin, who was stationed at the corner of Putnam and Greenwich Avenues some weeks ago, he said he would be surprised at the number of people that stop their cars for information and especially ask for a restaurant. He would refer them to the Maples or the Elms, no, they would reply, we want to go to a restaurant where we can get something to eat quickly. Often they inquire about a drugstore or a place to get a cigar. One Sunday not long ago, over 40 machines, that would be cars, stopped and made inquiries of the above nature. You talk of the with the average man, he'll stop those automobiles, don't, or he'll say those automobiles don't stop here, they just go through the town. Yes, quote-unquote, is the reply, quote, but you can make them stop if you offer the inducement. Word is passed along quickly from the automobile owners that each town has this or that and is a good place to stop, unquote. Someday an enterprising man will open a restaurant on Putnam Avenue <laughs> and, uh, and he will be rewarded if he don't expect to get rich in a minute by a thriving business. But what Greenwich really wants is a hotel on Putnam Avenue, and it would make money. The Maples is an excellent house of its kind, but it doesn't cater to the trade that would come to the businessman's hotel, the tourist trade, and a good first-class hotel of that kind would be a moneymaker. Someday, some man with money will see the opportunity. It's here, no doubt about that. By the way, um, uh, that's the end of the article, but I should mention to uh, all of you is that you know, 1913, we did not have I-95, the Connecticut Turnpike. We also didn't have the Merritt Parkway. So uh, all of the traffic that would be going um, in and out of uh, town or going through it would go on, well, of course, U.S. Route 1 or what we know today as um, East Putnam Avenue and West Putnam Avenue. Uh, rather uh, interesting, of course, uh, it has grown tremendously um, since that time. And speaking of that call for a, um, a good first-class hotel and everything, um, I would draw your attention, and I will present this on a future podcast, uh, that at the top of Greenwich Avenue, where uh, one Pickwick Plaza is today, um, was the very, very famous and place a uh, place very, very uh, something that those of us who were born and raised here were very fond of, and that would be the Pickwick Arms Hotel. Um, that probably was uh, the answer to that call for the good first-class hotel that would be a moneymaker, and um, I'll have some more about that in the near future. You have my word on that. Mm-hmm. 
Life and Art, the Greenwich Paintings of John Henry Twachman at the Greenwich Historical Society on October 19th, 2022, and it would be closing on January 22nd, 2023. My friends, this long-awaited exhibition of artworks by American Impressionist painter John Henry Twachman, who lived from 1853 to 1902, presents a new view into the artist's life and home in Greenwich, where he lived with his family from 1890 to 1899. The exhibition, curated by art historian and Twachman scholar Lisa N. Peters, PhD, features artworks on loan from museum and private collections across the country, offering a unique glimpse into the artworks Twachman made, which depict his Greenwich home and his distinctive environs and the way the artist shaped the land to meet his artistic needs. My friends, to learn more about life and art, the Greenwich paintings of John Henry Twachman, please go online to GreenwichHistory.org. Have you heard the term Gretna Green before? G-R-E-T-N-A, G-R-E-E-N. Well, it's a parish on the southern council area of Dumfries and Galloway in Scotland. It's on the Scottish side of the border between Scotland and England. Now, what is it about uh, this that um, caught my attention? Well, uh, Greta Green is famous for weddings. And in British history, the Clandestine Marriages Act of 1753 prevented couples under the age of 21 from marrying in England or Wales without parental consent. However, it was still legal in Scotland to marry without such consent, so lots of couples crossed the border into Scotland to uh, to get married, especially if they were um, underage, I suppose. Well, what is this leading to? Well, Erwin um, Edwards and later his brother L.B. Edwards were columnists in the early 20th century whose articles about Greenwich, Connecticut's history were published under the headline, Greenwich Life as it is and was. And lo and behold, Erwin Edwards penned a piece that I would like to share with you. And um, this one is dated, let me see, well, it appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic, and it appeared on Friday, January 2nd, 1920. And the title of this is Greenwich a Gretna Green. All right, so I've explained to you where Gretna Green comes from. Now let's get on with um, Mr. Edwards' piece. And it reads as follows. Greenwich is the Gretna Green of New York City, and for that matter, for towns and cities somewhat remote from the metropolis outside of the state of Connecticut. Why is our town given that name, perhaps someone will ask? Well, I certainly did. Why? Because it is so easy for couples anxious to get married and in a great hurry to do so to run up here from New York City and elsewhere to get the knot tied easily and quickly and, no questions asked, of a strictly personal nature. Hmm. And that, at any time of the day or night, married while they still wait, as it, as it were, no delays whatsoever, usually. This is because the marriage laws of Connecticut permit it. Of course, almost everyone knows what the significance of the words Greta, Gretna Green is and what that name has come to mean. Gretna Green, quote-unquote, this is from the story, is a quaint little village in Scotland situated just across the borderline between England and Scotland, 
a village formerly much resorted to by runaway couples from England to get married, and this on account of its nearness to the border of England, but particularly because of the liberality of the marriage laws of Scotland. In fact, those two words have come into such common use that the modern dictionaries define the quote-unquote Gretna Green as quote, a runaway marriage, unquote. Well, how about that? As to how many of these hurried marriages have taken place in Greenwich, it would be rather hard to say. And it would be necessary to go into the town clerk's office and to pore over the records for many years to find out. That the number is up to the thousands is not a misstatement. In late years, the list of such marriages has increased greatly. It is the civil marriage that we are particularly alluding to now. Of course, there have been many religious marriage ceremonies performed here as well, but that way of getting married is rather more difficult for, quote, hurry-up couples, unquote, because of the questions asked. Well, I'll bet. The civil marriage ceremony can be performed by a judge of a court or by a justice of the peace. In late years, it is about all the duty that a justice of the peace has been called upon to act in this in his official position, although now and then a civil law case is brought before one of them. The dean of all the justices of the peace now in office in Greenwich is Mr. William Timmons, whose place of business is on Lewis Street, but that isn't where he marries people. It's at his home on Havemeyer Place where he attends to those cases. Mr. Timmons has held the office of a justice of the peace longer than any one of the others now serving. He has married many Gretna Green couples. The tales that they sometimes, in a burst of confidence, tell him are pathetic, amusing, exciting, but always interesting. Quote, how long have you been a justice of the peace, Mr. Simmons? Unquote, 20 years. And I have been longer in the office than any one of the justices now serving. Question, unquote, how many couples have you married in those 20 years? Oh, I don't know. Never have I counted them up, but I should say it was about a hundred. I should think it would figure up more than a hundred in 20 years at your average nowadays. Well, I'll tell you about that, he says. At first, for a few years, I was rather shy and timid about marrying people. You know what I mean. I turned, uh, I turned many away who came to me and sent them to the judge or justice of the peace. Quote, but I got all over that feeling after I had married my first couple some years ago. That settled that timid business, and now it doesn't bother me at all to say, quote, now you're married, unquote. <laughs> I marry them as they come, at any time, day or night, and throw the clutch in high speed, for that is what they want. Question, how long does it take you to perform the ceremony? His answer, not more than a minute or uh, and a half. <laughs> of course, you know, there, he goes on, there are some things to attend to while I say you're married, some details. It may take an hour or two to get the license, perhaps less, depending on whether these hurry couples come day or night, during or after office hours, early even in the evening, or even after midnight. First, there are, first, these, quote, want to get married quick couples, unquote, to conform to the civil marriage procedure, must show up or hunt up a judge or justice of the peace, come to uh, me, for instance. Quote, I ask them if they want to get married at once. Yes, they reply. There are reasons why we want an immediate marriage, or something like that. 
Quote, it's none of my affair what their reason is. I fill in a paper, we have a blank forms for that purpose, which they both sign stating their desire for an immediate marriage. Then we start out, the three of us, to find the town clerk. If it's office hours, he is at the town building. If after hours, he is usually to be found at his home. Anyway, we always find him, be it day or night. I hand him the signed paper for the couple, and he gives me, in return, a marriage license. And I hand that to them. Then we immediately go somewhere, to my house, most always, where the ceremony is performed. Of course, there must be two witnesses, at least, to the marriage, and those usually accompany the parties and are friends of theirs. Then I ask them these questions. To the bride-to-be, do you want this man to be your husband? To the groom-to-be, do you want this woman to be your wife? They both reply yes. Then the groom-to-be takes a ring from his pocket and puts it on the finger of his wife-to-be and says, With this ring I thee wed, with all my worldly goods I thee endow. And then sign two marriage certificates as a justice of the peace, one for each, and give to them, and that ends it. The license I return to the town clerk's office in my endorsement of the marriage. Of course, you have had many experiences in marrying these couples, haven't you, Mr. Timmons? The reporter asks. Yes, twould fill a book if I should tell you all about them. Some serious couples, some just everyday folks, and so on. How about your fee? Do you have a set price or just leave it to them? Oh, I just leave it to them, he replied. Sometimes they leave a hundred dollars on the table and all the way up to that. What, uh, uh, the, the question is, what kind of people are they as a rule? And the answer is, I've married all kinds from hang-me-ups to millionaires, high and low, rich and poor, runaways, and divorced couples from all walks in life. Can't you remember, a question is asked, an incident in some one case or some romance in connection with these hurried-to-get-married couples that would be interesting? His answer, I haven't any in mind just now. I'll tell you a little incident, though, which occurred not long ago about one of the marriages. Two young people touched the button at the door of my house one night. No, it was about two o'clock in the morning. I suspected what was wanted and answered the call of the bell. They said in answer to my inquiry that they wanted to get married right away. And could they? They were very much excited. They were well on to the breaking point. Well, I said, yes, yes, I'll fix you, all right. Come in. They signed the necessary paper, and then we started out. We three to find the town clerk. He was home, um, and on presentation of the proper paper, we were given a marriage license, which I handed to them. We returned with all speed to my home, where the two witnesses, friends of theirs, had been waiting for us. They all stood up in the parlor, and I said to the woman, Do you want this man to be your husband? Yes, she replied in a whisper, her voice being all a tremble. I said to the man, Do you want this woman to be your wife? Yes, certainly, was his quick response. I looked at them just a second, and then said quickly, I'll kiss the bride, and you're married. I wouldn't have done any such thing as that ordinarily, but they both were so excited and just about to go all to pieces, it looked like 
that just broke the spell. The strain and tears gave way to laughter. They both shook hands with me at parting warmly, left a a two-number bill on the table, and said that they went out the door, quote, We'll never forget you, Justice Timmons. You're a man, if ever there was one, and you understood. (laughs) Well, that, my friends, (laughs) was... Uh, was uh, from uh, Erwin Edwards in his column, Greenwich Life as it is and, uh, and was. And this was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, January 2nd, 1920. Now, I'll tell you in future podcasts, I'm going to start um, uh, sharing with you some of the uh, interesting marriages that uh, took place in Greenwich. You can um, uh, anticipate that coming in um, our show's um, on the calendar, and um, and I promise you, I think that you will find these very, very, very interesting. Well, Greenwich Before 2000 was published as an updated, revised edition of another Greenwich history book, Before and After 1776, The Comprehensive Chronology of the Town of Greenwich. Going through 1999, Greenwich Before 2000 was a project by the Greenwich Historical Society that was made possible by the generous support and in honor of Russell S. Reynolds, Jr. He is a direct descendant of the founders of Greenwich, Connecticut, and his numerous philanthropic bequests have advanced the preservation of the town's history for many years. Now, on today's show, we're going to gaze back in time to the years 1883, 1884, and 1885. Beginning with 1883, of course, granite from the rich quarry in Byram is used in building the footings for the Brooklyn Bridge and major buildings in New York. On February 3, 1883, the Greenwich Observer merges with the newcomer, the Greenwich Graphic. And on July 7th of that year, the name change from Costco to Bayport has little support because the railroad refuses to make the change and citizens' petitions show decided disapproval. Only the post office became Bayport and the name reverted to Costco in 1895. In the year 1884, the abandoned, oh, the old abandoned mill building on the west side of the Mianus River in Mianus, which formerly belonged to Peter A. Bertus and Company, is bought by A.J. Finney and converted into a general store. In 1884, specifically April 30th, the Southern New England Telephone Company has 40 subscribers, many in Round Hill and Stanwich, who have agreed to pay $10 per quarter. In October 25th of that year, about 4,000 barrels of apples, bringing $1.50 a barrel, are shipped to New York from Greenwich. And for the year 1885, the Greenwich Gas and Electric Lighting Company is incorporated. It was absorbed by the uh, the Connecticut Light and Power Company in 1899 and in 1911 became the Housatonic Power Company. In April 1885, Barclay Johnson shoots his mother, sister, and himself at Indian Harbor. Mourners line Greenwich Avenue for the funeral procession to the Second Congregational Church. And in August of that year, the Greenwich Yacht Club is organized but not incorporated. It lasts only three years, and finally... On September 25th, 1885, the Women's Christian Temperance Union state organizer speaks to women in the Second Congregational Church with the result that 22 pledge themselves to the cause. 
And the cause, of course, is uh, temperance. That, my friends, is what happened in Greenwich based on Greenwich Before 2000, the, um, uh, the book that um, you can get at the Greenwich Library. And to do so, I would urge you to either visit one of your nearest branches of the Greenwich Library or you could visit GreenwichLibrary.org. Well, my friends, Rick Hansen, local history librarian at the Greenwich Library, has announced the Heritage with Hoopla 5 part series. Why not start the new year by delving into your genealogy and family history? Join us as attendees wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the great courses series. The series is free to the public. No registration is required. Seating is limited to 18 and seating is made on a first come first served basis. The next workshop the genealogical proof standard will be held on Wednesday, January 18th, 2023 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Strengthen your skills as a family history detective in this in-depth look at the genealogical proof standard. The five-step process that certified genealogists use for proving ancestral identities, relationships, life events, and other biographical details. Then wrap up the lecture with a fascinating look at the nature of evidence. The next workshop is Ancestors in the County Courthouse that will be held on Wednesday, January 25th, 2023, 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Discover how to work your way through the courthouse records of the county where your ancestors resided. Using the two most common types of courts, circuit and chancery, you'll examine how to read courthouse materials, including probate packets, vital records, tax rolls, and even colonial era records such as indentures and apprenticeships. And the final workshop will be held on February 1st, 2023, and that one is Ancestors and State Records. Now again, that will be on Wednesday, February 1st, 2023, from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m. in the Learning Lab. Good genealogists always take advantage of local sources outside the courthouse as well, including state archives, which hold records that resulted in the administration of state laws. Here, you'll learn how to tap into the information found in original sources, such as census and military records, and derivative sources, including maps and newspapers. As with all workshops, please arrive early as the program will start right on time. Each week, attendees will watch a 30-minute genealogy video in Hoopla, followed by a discussion and practice of the techniques learned. Participants and attendees are asked, please, to bring your Greenwich Library card and PIN to access Hoopla. Program Contact, uh, contact is Carla Sherman at 203-625-6560 or Rick Hansen at 203-622-7948. Again, this is the Heritage with Hoopla series at the Greenwich Library. Attendees will wander through Hoopla's Discovering Your Roots, an introduction to genealogy using the Great Source series. This is free and open to the public. There is no res- registration required. You are encouraged to come to all of the of the workshops. And again, uh, it is always first come, first served. Now, for more information, my friends, please, 
please visit GreenwichLibrary.org. The program contact is Rick Hansen. He is the local uh, Greenwich, uh, Greenwich Library local history historian, uh, or librarian, rather, sorry. <laughs> and um, his contact uh, phone number is 203-622-7948. You can also reach him by email at r. Hansen, that's R-H-A-N-S-E-N, at GreenwichLibrary.org. Well, my friends, the Greenwich Historical Society's curators, educators, and docents, they've come together to bring the best of Greenwich history, its stories, the town's landmarks, archives, and collections online for all to peruse and to enjoy. And this is in a section of the Greenwich Historical Society's website called History from Home. Now, for educators, parents, and all those curious about Greenwich and the town's rich history, uh, all are welcomed to log on to the History from Home section of the Greenwich Historical Society's website and to enjoy the stories that are there. Now, a sampling of some of these, let me give you a few titles here, are Celebrating the Suffrage Centennial, It's Elementary, Greenwich Resident Helped Introduce a Famous Detective to America, May I Have This Dance, Celebrating the Legacy of Genjiro Ito, the Havemeyer Building, Crispus Attucks, A Legacy of Radical Black Dignity, let's see, Joe and Johnny, Friendship at the Bush Holly House, and we have so many more. Now, one of the things I'm going to do uh, in future uh, shows is that I'm going to provide you with a sampling of these. Now, on behalf of the Greenwich Historical Society, I have a little offer that I would like to pass along. It's uh, and I'll state it as um, it says on the website. If you would like to contribute to our online resource or have a suggestion for a specific topic of interest, please email D Nicklaus. That would be Diane Nicklaus. Uh, she is um, a staff member at uh, Greenwich H- uh, Historical Society. Now you can uh, contact her at uh, 203-869-6899, or you can contact Diane at dnicklaus, and that's spelled D-N-I-K-L-A-U-S, at greenwichhistory.org. Now, uh, I think we're going to start, why don't we, why don't we just start that off um, with a uh, sampling today? Let me just see, I'm just going to pick something randomly here. Um, and, uh, well, now, you know what, there was a, um, an exhibit a few years ago at the Greenwich Historical Society about gardens, community gardening, and things like that. So we have one here called Our Town, Our Gardens, Community Gardening in Greenwich. And this is by Kelsey Dalton, and um, I'm going to read you what uh, she has uh, written for us here. Community gardens have existed for as long as communities have. On the North American continent, many indigenous First Nations held and worked land communally. Several Eastern nations, such as the Howden, I hope I pronounced this uh, properly, um, and if I don't, well, I'm, I apologize, Howden, now Sun, Sunri, and the Nape peoples considered women to be the workers and keepers of the land, a belief which undergirded their matriarchal cultures. In Europe, feudal societies had communal plots that generated the food supply for the serfs themselves, smaller than the fields that they worked to produce the crops owed to the lord of the manor. When Europeans were first colonizing New England, farming collectively was often the only chance of survival, given the lack of laborers and experience, and even these endeavors would have likely failed if it weren't for the help of indigenous neighbors. 
This is generally the story of the first communal gardens in Greenwich, but throughout its history, Greenwich residents would continue to come together to plant and harvest with an eye to the common good. Greenwich continued to be a farming community up until the first decades of the 20th century, with many estates maintaining kitchen gardens even as they transformed their farms into pleasure grounds. These kitchen gardens were expanded rapidly with the advent of World War I. The war gardens of 1917 to 1918 were started in response to the worry that the food supply would fail due to destruction overseas and the loss of farm laborers as men went to the trenches. Private land was repurposed to grow fruits and vegetables, some of which were processed by the Greenwich Canning Kitchen to be sent to the front lines, and land on the outskirts of the town was offered up to community members who wanted to contribute to the cause but didn't have the space. The local newspapers ran encouraging articles and letters from readers, including one titled, quote, Keep a Toad, unquote, that exhorted gardeners to keep the patriot who was working to defend the plants from bugs and another titled Raise Sheep's raised sheep on lawns, which insisted that Greenwich residents didn't have to tear up their beautiful lawns to produce food, but should instead keep a flock of sheep to trim the grass and provide meat for the kitchen. Let's see. Uh, Collective gardening and preserving became a patriotic duty, strengthening the ties of the community and inspiring amazing ingenuity and sacrifice. Dr. Oliver Huckel, the pastor of the Second Congregational Church, recalled both the difficulties and triumphs in a speech at the 1932 annual meeting. And he says, and I quote, The trying times of the, of the, of the World War, with their strenuous patriotic undertakings and self-sacrificing economies for conservation, their war parades, war garden parties, patriotic mass meetings, drives for funds, sewing, or sewing, knitting and gossip parties, giving until it hurt, installment plan purchases of Liberty Bonds, eating gutta-percha biscuit and plaster of Paris pancakes lubricated with oleomargarine, so the real stuff might be sent to the soldiers who finally didn't get much of it, and all that, how well we remember it all. And that came from the Daily News graphic, December 10, 1932, and that title of the story was Dr. Huckle's Story of 17 Years Changes. Even as Dr. Huckle gave his speech, the community was being tested again by the Great Depression and would be tested further with the coming of World War II. The stock market crash of 1929 had catastrophic effects on the entire nation. Millions became unemployed and homeless, roving the country looking for work and shelter. Bread and soup lines were common in urban areas, and families everywhere tightened economies to try to hold onto their homes and livelihoods. The residents of Greenwich, possibly inspired by the successes of their war parties, banded together to feed their community. Overseen by a town committee and assisted by the Westchester Fairfield Horticultural Society, more than 20 estates grew vegetables in their gardens to be distributed to those in town who were having trouble making ends meet. Other estates loaned acres of their land to applicants who planted and worked the plots using town-provided seed and then shared out the resulting harvest. Local Boy, Boy Scout Troop 15 also contributed. The troop started their own garden at 118 Pemberwick Road to grow vegetables to be distributed by the Byram Parent Teachers Association to families in need of financial support commonly grown 
produce included cabbages, tomatoes, carrots, beets, and eggplants. After World War II, the country turned slightly inward with the explosion of the suburbs and the rise of the private family home. Community gardens wouldn't gain another surge in popularity in Greenwich until the 1960s. The Armstrong Court Community Garden was started in 1963 with instruction from local garden clubs, primarily Hortolus. The Armstrong Court plot served the tenants of the Armstrong Court Housing Association project, and though interest had ebbed and flowed, a few residents were still gardening there decades later when the garden was refurbished. Since the revitalization in 2009, when volunteers and local students helped to cut back overgrown brush, pick up litter, and clean up the stream that runs along the garden, it has experienced an upsurge in popularity. Greenwich Community Gardens, the organization that oversees the gardens, has expanded to include the Bible Street Gardens in Cascob and plans and manages volunteers in the Nathaniel Witherell Garden, which grows produce for the residents' meals. From the early days of our modern times, Greenwich community members have sought to preserve and connect through gardening. These communal places have seen the town through some of the most difficult periods of American history, feeding body and soul through good food and community spirit. The burgeoning of the local inorganic food movements have reminded us more than ever that we are what we eat, but the continuing legacy of community gardens reminds us that the people who join us at our plots and tables, are just as important. And that is by Kelsey Dalton. Again, you can uh, learn more by going to GreenwichHistory.org and uh, finding uh, the um, site that I just mentioned, and that would be, of course, History from Home, and that is in the Library and Archives uh, section uh, on the the um, uh, on the menu that is at the uh, top of the uh, page. If you would like to participate in this, please uh, call Diane Nicklaus at 203-869-6899 or email her at the um, email address that I gave you just a little while ago. So uh, we'd love to have, I think, um, a few more articles from, from you. If you're looking to um, carve your own niche, if you will, into... Um, uh, Greenwich history and doing your part to educate the public about um, the rich history of this town. Well, here's your opportunity. Well, before we close today's show, I would like to remind you, of course, that yesterday we observed Martin Luther King Jr. Day across the United States and even beyond. There's a quote that I found that I find particularly inspirational, and I'd like to share it with you from Dr. King. This was written um, from uh, jail, and it's an excerpt from Letter from a Birmingham Jail, written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and it goes as follows. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives inside the United States can never be considered an outsider anywhere within its bounds. Well, you know, I'll tell you the words of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., written in 1963 from inside that jail cell in Alabama after his arrest, well, it remains uh, very, very pertinent um, today. Much has been gained uh, or made fair since the volatile days of the civil rights movement 
Uh, but, um, you know, we are all reminded that uh, there is plenty of work that, um, that remains to be done, but much has been accomplished for which we are very grateful. Laws have been enacted since King's time, but the underbelly attitudes of inequality have not changed anywhere. But again, I think that we have made tremendous progress, even though there is still much uh, to be done. Um, many services and remembrances uh, were held throughout the state of Connecticut and elsewhere across the country and even beyond to remember Dr. King and what his actions meant to the world, uh, not only today and yesterday, but for future years ahead. I applaud those efforts to keep, uh, to keep Martin Luther King's memory alive and to assure that his ideals will be communicated to new generations. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly, and um, the work continues. Well, as always, my friends, I am very grateful to you for tuning in to the Tuesday, 17th of January, 2023 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. This weekly podcast is hosted by me. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I am a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the gateway to New England. Greenwich, Connecticut stands today in the 21st century as one of America's most notable and attractive communities, and it's a special place for us because we call this place home, and I hope you do too. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Well, I welcome you to contact me anytime, and you can do so at email by sending your letters to Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. You can learn more about the show and you can listen to past shows by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Our next show is scheduled for next Tuesday. That would be the 24th of January, 2023. I'm grateful to all of you, wherever you are, for your interest and enthusiasm for celebrating and preserving Greenwich, Connecticut's history. I look forward to seeing you next week and have yourself a great week ahead. Talk to you later. Bye-bye now. Thank you.